The views expressed and the opinions given by the individual host, guest, random reptoid, or chupacabra may not necessarily reflect those of AM950 Radio, its affiliates, or its sponsors. Now, it's time to step into the unknown. There are things people experience but never talk about. A shadow moving in the corner, flickering of the lights, a disembodied voice. We invite you to talk with us, share your story, share your experience, because this isn't just your story, this is our story. This is Ghost Box Radio with Greg Bakken. And this is Ghost Box Radio on AM 950, where every night we talk about the paranormal, ufology, Bigfoot, and so much more. My name is Greg Bakken. Thank you very much for joining me tonight on this wonderful Tuesday. Uh, we are uh, we're in the season of Christmas, right? That's that's the that's obvious. Uh, you can't escape it. Uh, but uh, one of the things, you know, as as you know, trying to think about how do we how do we celebrate Christmas, but still kind of keep a spin on the weird and unusual that this show is so good at bringing you. Uh, I think there's there's an area that we don't really, I think the majority of us in the U.S. don't really uh, think about or even consider during uh, any of this time of year. You know, I mean, if, if you go up to uh, uh, some Americans and you ask, you did you realize that a, a a Christmas Carol is a ghost story. Uh, you might get a number of them saying, I had no idea, didn't even think about that, which it very much is. There's a long history of Christmas uh, this time of year, going back to some very uh, scary folklore. And I wanted to talk about that, and I wanted to uh, bring in uh, somebody who would be able to uh, talk with us about that tonight. So tonight we're going to be talking about Tim Rayborn's book, The Scary Book of Christmas Lore, 50 Terrifying Yuletide Tales from Around the World. And uh, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. Before we bring Tim on, I just want to introduce him. Tim has written a large number of books and magazine articles, especially in subjects such as music, the arts, general knowledge, and history. He lived in England for many years and studied at the University of Leeds, which means he likes to pretend that he knows what he's talking about. He's an almost famous musician who plays dozens of unusual instruments from all over the world that most people have never heard of and usually can't pronounce. He has appeared on more than 40 recordings, and his musical wanderings and tours have taken him across the U.S., all over Europe, to Canada and Australia, to such romantic locations as Umbria, Marrakesh, Renaissance Chateau, medieval churches, and high school gymnasiums. He currently lives in Northern California with many books, recordings, and instruments, and sometimes a demanding cat. He's a pretty enthusiastic about good wines and cooking excellent food. You can find out more about Tim and the other books and stuff he's written. Go to timrayborn.com. That's Tim, R-A-Y-B-O-R-N.com. Tim, welcome to Ghost Box Radio. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Looking forward to uh, to talking with you. More of a pleasure today or tomorrow? No, I'm just kidding. That's uh, something that I kept giving Tim the wrong day to show up. Uh, that... <laughs> well, it is interesting, and we'll get into it. Tomorrow is actually a special day in the scary Christmas calendar, so we'll talk about that oh. in, a, in, a, in a little bit. So, oh. yeah, <laughs> that's that's interesting. I mean, and that's and that's really what we we are talking about tonight. As I mentioned, the book is called uh, "The Scary Book of 
Christmas lore, 50 terrifying Yuletide tales from around the world. And uh, this is a this is a new book, isn't it? It just came out uh, November 14th, I believe it was published. So by Cider Mill Press, which is a division of HarperCollins Focus. And and tonight we are going to be talking about uh, some of this folklore. Also, uh, Tim is going to read uh, some excerpts from the book uh, and kind of give us an idea because uh, there there's I do you okay? I don't even really know where to start, but I think I'm just going to start with this. Why would this time of year do you think bring so many of these kind of these tales, especially around this time of year? It's interesting because so much of what we do think about modern Christmas, certainly the way that it's celebrated in the United States, but also in Britain, uh, in the English speaking world, if you want to say, is largely an invention of the Victorians. We go back to Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol and also to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who brought German traditions. He was German and he brought German traditions um, to the crown. So they were the ones that really popularized things like the Christmas tree and Christmas cards and such. But so a lot of our traditional celebrations uh, definitely have a roots in things that started in Britain about 150 to 170 years ago. And by 1850 or so, uh, the Christmas tree was pretty well established in Britain. It took a little longer to get to the United States and uh, various other things that we now think of like Christmas cards and certain types of foods and presents and those sorts of things became much more common. In earlier centuries, the, um, there is evidence for decorating trees of certain types, but it wasn't really a thing. People would bring greenery into their homes. They might bring uh, holly or they might bring, uh, you know, evergreens and such and use them to decorate. The um, This was popular certainly in Tudor England. The Puritans in the 17th century kind of squashed down on that, but it was uh, certainly a tradition. But the idea of gift giving, if gifts were given at all, they were usually giving it, uh, given at New Year's or around the Feast of the Epiphany, which was January 5th, 6th, depending on the calendar. So the idea of exchanging gifts on Christmas is a more recent, a recent development. But alongside of that is alongside of the traditional Christmas celebrations that the Victorians introduced, there was also a, a long tradition of Christmas ghost stories. And it wasn't just Dickens. Dickens was tapping into something and he inspired quite a few more. But there were a lot of stories about that. And so we have to start looking at this and we wonder why this is what what is it about this time? And then we start looking at traditions and legends throughout Western Europe and Northern Europe and certainly into Central and even all the way out as far as Greece and Turkey. And uh, um, what do we say? Anthropologists and, and other researchers started noticing that there was a long tradition of things between any month, any time during the month of December to, say, mid-January of very strange sort of traditions and rituals that sort of paint the the nighttime as one of terror actually than one of mm. celebration and it's a very interesting juxtaposition from what we think of as being the the happiest time the most wonderful time of the year there's actually this deep-seated tradition of of tales of terror and monsters lurking in in the vast wilderness that are waiting to kill people essentially so so we have to start looking at those um what that might mean so that's that's a, a brief introduction we'll talk a little bit more about that momentarily yeah but. absolutely and i mean it's 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 interesting too because i mean when you really think think about it the the modern day christmas is kind of uh marred in, in maybe not uh and maybe not tales like that but certainly uh kind of threats you know if you're not good certain people aren't going to show up at your house if right. if you are or or the idea of krampus also i mean i think krampus over the last 20 years have in in the u.s yeah. has picked up some steam has hasn't he 
Absolutely. Krampus is the most famous. He's, there's, there's a lot of those. There, there's a number of different holiday spirits in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and uh, going into even northern Italy that do very similar things. But Krampus is the one that people have really sort of latched onto. Deep, deep, uh, deep uh, traditions of, of Krampus going uh, through Austria, through the Alps, largely any of the Alpine countries you'll find in these remote villages. They'll have these festivals. It's usually on Krampusnacht, which is December 5th, mm -hmm. and that's the night before St. Nicholas's Day. And Krampus and St. Nicholas in Christian tradition are very inextricably linked to one another. They're very important. Though, as far as we can tell, the first known Krampus celebrations are only from about the 16th century. But the um, the first mentions, but it's possible that he represents something much, much older from a pre-Christian tradition of even like the Greek uh, satyrs and, and those sorts of things. It's the sort of goat god and the goat figures and, and those sorts of like mischievous characters and agents of chaos and such. So so traditions and belief in Krampus. And, and yes, indeed, the, the, the original story was not that if you're naughty, that, that uh, you know, you'll get a lump of coal in your in your stocking in this case it's krampus accompanies saint nicholas and if you've been naughty campus throws you in his sack and takes you away to beat you and possibly torture you so it's it's a considerably darker and more and krampus is usually portrayed in these these days there's these wonderful masks and costumes that revelers use and they're sort of kind of hybrid goat things with big long horns and claws and they'll they'll walk through the villages in these processions with their little birch uh birch uh you know whips and they'll lightfully sort of flat people as they walk by but it harkens back to a much darker tradition of of punishment and death if you uh, if you did wrong so yeah unbelievable and mm -hmm. I, I mean i forgot all about saint nicholas i mean i you know i forget that we we get we get visited twice uh you know by by strangers outside of our house and i remember <laughs> i remember putting the shoes outside my room uh right. that maybe right. there might be a little something in there yeah, I mean, that's, well, of course, you're in Minnesota, and there's a strong Scandinavian population Absolutely. there, of course, obviously, so there's long traditions of, of visitations by Nicholas, who in, in Europe is still seen as someone different than Santa Claus, so in the United States, they've been kind of conflated, they're often conflated as the same person, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But Nicholas, throughout the um, throughout the Alps and throughout the Germanic things, is very often accompanied by Krampus or other outcast spirits, monsters, um, people condemned for various reasons, and they're they're like his uh, they're like his enforcers, basically. So he brings candy, he brings toys, but there's also this threat that comes with them. Well, and as as it should be, we're talking with Tim Rayborn and his book, The Scary Book of Christmas Lore: Fifty Terrifying Yuletide Tales from Around the World. Uh, I would. Remind people, if you have a question, put it in the comments. I mean, it's it's uh, this is incredibly fascinating. Uh, Emily has a question for you. When we were talking about why this time of year brings up so much of, of that, why Christmas, Emily had asked the question, um, is uh, is this because winter represents the end of the year cycle or the, yes, excuse, the end of life cycle? Absolutely. It's tied in with winter solstice and the rebirth of the sun, which is an ancient, ancient tradition. You know, um, the megaliths in Ireland and, and Britain were meant to mark the winter solstice, and those are 5,000 years old. So people knew that this was an important time when the light was at its darkest, but the light you know, had to return. And so these rituals would be set up to try to ensure that. But during that time, it could be a dangerous time, particularly in Northern Europe, where it can be dark for, you know, you get into Northern Scandinavia, it's dark 22 hours a day, and maybe you yeah. only ever get twilight, you know, that you don't get a whole lot of sun. So it's it's a time 
a fragile time between life and death as well. And a lot of this, the terror of the forest is also the terror of the snowstorm and the terror of famine. And, you know, if you don't, what if you don't have enough food? We these days can sit in our comfortably heated houses and watch television and celebrate Christmas. But it was a very dangerous time. You know, if you didn't have enough stock uh, food preserved for the winter, uh, if you didn't have enough grain, if your crops failed, you could very well be facing starvation. So there was, I think a lot of this is mythologized um, uh, awareness of that real risk that the, the forest and, and the night and the snow can bring very real death very quickly to anyone who strays too far and strays away from the, the safety of the village or the safety of the of the home. So some of these are, I mean, and kind of like how uh, how it's set up nowadays with children. A lot of this is, uh, they're, they're, they're meant as warnings and, yeah. and not warnings it's more to try to keep people, try to keep people in line to a certain extent, yes. right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. These days, it's more children behave. But there was also then there's an element of it in some of these tales as well. Uh, you need to do all of your chores before Yule. You need to sweep up. And again, some of that also had to do with what was expected of people. If you needed to milk cows, if you needed to do things, not doing that could lead to real big repercussions. So it wasn't just a question of wash behind your ears and sweep up. Sometimes there were farm chores that had to be done to ensure the safety of the animals or that you know things were brought in. So if you didn't do that, it could lead to a lot of problems. So there had to be consequences for those things. Now, how did you uh, get interested in this, in particular, this this arena that created the book? Well, it's interesting. I've, I've written a number of books over the years on various paranormal topics, as I was saying before we started. Yeah. And that, going way back about seven or eight years now, I've done a, a series of them. And I, for this particular publisher, I had already written a book on the paranormal and one on the end of the world, stories of the end of the world and conspiracy theories. They actually approached me and they said, well, we want to put this book out about Christmas. Would you mind researching it? So they, uh, in this case, it, it was something they proposed to me. And of course, I jumped on the uh, the chance to do it. So yeah, yeah, it was it was the publisher's idea. I just I just did the research and wrote the book. <laughs> is it is it uh was it was it hard to because i mean it's i mean there there's some deep digging going on here uh was it was it hard to get this information at uh, some some of the more uh more of the far out stuff it, it depends. Yeah, there, there are some good internet resources. There's some really good books. There's an excellent book on Krampus and all of the Krampus traditions. There's books on Scandinavian traditions. You might have to dig a little bit, but there's a lot of folk tales and things out there that are, are readily available if you know where to look. So it was actually fairly easy and quite fun to put together. Is you have a favorite? Uh, favorite. Like a favorite uh, like a, a figure or story or whatever. Uh, a whole bunch. I mean, there's, if you'd like, I could read a couple of things from the uh, from the book, if you'd like. How's our, how are we doing for time? Why don't we do this? Let's uh, go ahead. Let's take our first break. Uh, sure. w- when we come back, we can uh, go ahead and uh, have uh, Tim read for us. It's, it's a great book. We're going to talk more about it. You're listening to Ghost Box Radio on AM 950. As Matt McNeil says, if you like what we're doing over here at AM 950, please consider signing up and becoming a member of our station. Go to www.am950radio.com. All the details of uh, what that entails is there. And uh, if you like what I'm doing, uh, please uh, go and check it out and consider doing so. Thank you very much. We are talking with uh, Mr. Tim Rayborn. We're talking about the scary book of Christmas lore, 50 terrifying Yuletide tales from around the world. And uh, Tim, I mean, uh, this right now, people can uh, you can, they can order the book, but it's 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 
on back order, right? It's on back order. Yeah, I think it actually did better than they were planning. <laughs> it now appears to be. There are some local bookstores that may have acquired copies, but it appears to be. It might be a couple of weeks. So if you're hoping for a Christmas read, you might be disappointed at this point. But a lot, some of the stories carry on into January, so you can spread the fear a little bit longer. <laughs> Absolutely. And then you get still get your book. You wake it a little bit later, but then you don't have to worry about the rush for next year. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. So uh, yes, I would love to hear uh, something from the sure. book. If possible. Let me read a, a couple of entries since okay. these are so uh, close to what we've just been talking about. There's some interesting legends about St. Nicholas himself. Uh, switch glasses here and I'll give you a couple of a couple of sections. So the first two entries in the book are about St. Nicholas. Uh, St. Nicholas and the Butchered Children is the name of the first that lets you know where we're going right away. And then Krampus, who is his eternal companion. Uh, so let me I'll just read you a little bit. Since St. Nicholas is at the heart of many of these tales and legends, we'll begin our journey down the dark paths of Christmas terrors with him. St. Nicholas is a handy alternate name for Santa Claus, but there really was a St. Nicholas who lived in Asia Minor in what is now Turkey from about 270 until his death on December 6th, 343. December 6th is still his feast day. In his own time, he was Nicholas of Bari, a Greek bishop in an age when the Roman Empire was not officially Christian or even close to having a majority of Christians in its population. Nor too much is known, not too much is known about his actual biography, but quite a few legends sprung up about him during and after his life. Many of these stories tell about his generosity and his, his secretly giving gifts to people or money to those in need. He was quite possibly the first secret Santa. One such story says that he prevented three girls from being forced into prostitution by dropping sacks of gold through their window each night for three nights, which allowed their fathers, their father enough money to pay dowries for them. Uh, there are various others. Uh, the most famous legend about him concerns the fate of three children and a very evil butcher. The story goes that these three kids were out in the field and lost track of time. They came to a town into a butcher shop, which was lighted inside. They were tired and hungry, and now they were lost, so they knocked on the door. The butcher answered, and they asked him if they could have some food and a place to sleep for the night. He was only too happy to welcome them in, but he had no intention of giving them a warm welcome. Taking out a sharp knife, he killed and butchered each of them, dismembering them and placing the body parts in the barrel with brine for curing. He intended to sell the pieces as ham to unwary customers when curing, the curing was finished. It brings to mind the story of Sweeney Todd. As a long, a long time went by, some accounts say even as much as seven years, but Nicholas learned of the crime and went to the butcher. He commanded that this evil man open up his salting barrel and the butcher could do nothing but comply. Once open, Nicholas made the sign of the crossover and commanded the children to rise. The three dismembered bodies were miraculously repaired and the children were brought back to life. No word on what happened to the butcher, but later legends say that he was forced to work with Nicholas ever after as a penance for his sins. We'll meet some of his incarnations in this book. So some of the evil people that accompany Nicholas are said to have been this butcher who who dismembered these children to sell his meat. <laughs> wow. And, you know, and I was thinking about when you're reading it that I don't recall a Rankin-Bass uh, holiday special trying to stop children being or women or girls being put into prostitution. Right. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> it won't be a Disney film about this. Right. <laughs> so Nicholas, many of his uh, many of his uh, companions, which take different forms in different countries, some of them are connected with this legend, which appears to be a later medieval legend. It seems to have come about. Uh, sometime perhaps in the 12th or 13th century seems to be the first appearance of it, but it, it and that may have been a justification for mm -hmm. some of the from some of the um, 
pageants and festivals that were already going on with Nicholas, where you had a sort of synthesis of pagan and Christian, where the Krampus represented an older tradition, the traditions of the wild hunt and the monsters of the forest. And St. Nicholas was brought in to Christianize it. So they synthesized it. And then they needed a story for why they traveled together. So there's there's a look at like how folklore can can kind of meld into a, a new tradition can be born out of out of out of, you know, different stories from different layers and different time periods. It's interesting. You know, yeah. I, I find it – do you when – you, when you're going through this research, do you ever just kind of think, I can't believe this stuff has lasted this long? Like, the, you know, like anything with St. Nick. I mean, you're talking back in the third century. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's like – but yet there, it, is, it is still relevant today. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is quite remarkable, actually. And, and some of these stories certainly were passed on – via oral tradition for very long periods of time. Yeah. And and they come from a time when people, you know, they weren't just stories. People really believed these things. These things actually held people in a grip of fear, you know, well up into even the 18th, 19th century, there were probably some in remote villages that actually, you know, did fear these things. And I think that these festivals were in some way a way of enacting that out or ritualizing it or working out their fears. So it was a kind of way of, of role-playing these uh, these events, maybe to hold them off, but certainly it was, it was a way of acknowledging that those things ran very deep in the collective sort of consciousness of a community definitely and certainly children believe them oh uh, yeah i mean it yeah. just i just in, it's it's just incredible and uh i i mean and imagine all of the ones that have happened like all these uh, traditions or these these this folklore that we have lost over the years that we don't even oh. know about yeah indeed yeah it's a shame so i mean there was a it was a great move in the 19th century among folklorists and and is sort of early anthropologists to try to collect these sorts of things. But unfortunately, a lot of them overlaid their own sort of opinions and things about them. We do have, like, for instance, the Brothers Grimm to thank for the collections of their fairy tales. And, and those, as you, as you know, if you read the originals, they're not the Disney ones. They, they can be quite grim, as the name implies. They're, they're very dark. And then Hans Christian Andersen in Denmark wrote his own based on, based on you know, not really based on older legends, but he created new fairy tales. And some of those are grim and horrific. Like, the original version of The Little Mermaid is not the Disney version. And then there's, you know, stories like the red shoes where the girl gets her feet cut off because it's the only way she can escape them, you know, from forcing her to dance. So these, these were dark, dark tales. Absolutely. It, do you, do you think that there's a problem with uh, the, if you will, the Disneyfication of some of this stuff, or do you think that it, as long as the original is still available for people to look at that, that it's not that big of a deal? I, I don't see it as a problem. I think that these stories are very robust and can take many different forms. And I, I think that every every version has its place somewhere. I don't I don't necessarily see that that's a problem. And sure. I think especially for very young children and such, the the kind of Disney tales are certainly appropriate to introduce them to the the stories. And maybe when they get older, they can read the other ones. But I, I think it's I think that's that's not something I see as a problem at all. And I suppose any of them that's out there, if they did, if they were to stick to the source material like directly, there'd be no happy endings. There would be <laughs> well. There are some horror films in recent years, of course, that have actually attempted to do this that's sort of true. thing. There are a number of retellings in novel form. Of, that's been a popular thing in recent years is, is uh, sort of retellings of fairy tales or old Greek myths, but like updated in, in sort of novel novel form. Sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a common thing. It, it, it just shows the stories are very robust and can take on lives of their own. Very true. Actually, you know, come to think of it, I'm much more annoyed that uh, Disney would actually uh, change their own films. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because uh, you see Pinocchio uh, have a cigar stuffed in his mouth. He's, he is forced to smoke it, stuff like that. Right. Uh, right. You know, then, then the fact that they're changing around. All right. What about Krampus? Krampus. Krampus is, of course, the granddaddy of all European winter holiday monsters, a fearsome furry demon with a terrible attitude that can't wait to get out in the snow and cause mischief. 
He's certainly not the oldest beastie haunting the holidays, but these days he's definitely the most famous. So it's natural to begin our ghoulish gallery with him. Krampus accompanies St. Nicholas and has his very own night, the eve of St. Nicholas Day. In fact, the night December 5th. Krampusnacht is the time when he is most active and when children have the most to fear. He's often depicted as a horned, satyr-like, goat-footed demon carrying a large basket on his back into which he will toss naughty children to drag them off to terrible tortures. He usually drags change and carries a ruta, which is a bundle of birch branches that he uses to swat misbehaving children. If that's all they get from him, they should count themselves lucky. His name might come from the old Bavarian Krampen, meaning dead, or the German Kramp, meaning claw. Either word seems like a good etymology for him. He has long been associated with St. Nicholas, and tales of Krampus and his punishments might date back as early as the 7th century, though it seems that the earliest written records of this frightening figure date to the end of the 16th or early 17th century. It's possible that fears of a menacing alpine winter visitor predate Christianity and that the legends and festivals were intertwined with Christian belief when the church realized that they couldn't be eliminated entirely. So this fearsome night creature was given a holy role within the church to punish sinners, especially children. The Nazis even banned Krampus celebration, but the people were having none of it. And as soon as those losers were dispatched, Krampus came right back bigger than ever. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, now is, is it, was part of it true of of the uh, folklore around Krampus that he could not escape a copper pot, or is that, or is that something that I've just seen in in other media that they that's, that someone has created over time? I'm not aware of that, but it could be. I mean, there are so many different traditions. You have certainly there, there isn't just one, of course. And with scattered across Austria, Switzerland, southern Germany, Bavaria, you have these isolated communities and villages. And it's entirely possible that they invented their own versions of stories, and that someone in the village twenty miles down the road might have a very different version. So it's entirely possible that that's that's not one that I've heard, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was something you know that was added to the the lore and the legends over time. Well, and I'm embarrassed to say I heard about that on American Dad. So I mean. I'm not, you know, don't. <laughs> a, a reliable source. That. <laughs> that's, that's where that's where I get all of my uh, literary prose uh, from. Uh, as it happens, uh, American, American Dad, uh, they have it where uh, Santa is actually the evil one, and Krampus right. was the was the was not great, but you know better. Um, so, but I mean, I suppose that's kind of the fun part too, is being able to take some of those stories, kind of what we're talking about the yeah. Disney stuff, and being able to. Uh, uh, kind of switch them around and, and, and have some fun He's, with them. They're very malleable, but they live on because of that fact that they can be changed around. And you'll see that in most folklore, a lot of folk tales. There are a lot of folk tales that we're very familiar with that actually have very similar versions all around the world. And it doesn't always mean that they came from the same place and changed later. That might, but it also kind of shows that there might be the sort of wellspring from the sort of human unconscious, if you will, that keeps bringing these sorts of tales and things up around the world in various places. There are different versions of the Cinderella tale, for example. There's there's lots of different stories that, that seem to resemble one another, but don't necessarily have obvious connections. So it's it's entirely, yeah, the, the night monster is a thing that has plagued humanity for as long as we've been human. Uh, the fear of the dark, the fear of the predator, and that goes back to, you know, worrying about night, uh, worrying about hyenas and and lions on the Serengeti. Basically, the idea of something dangerous hiding in the bushes, and the need to stick together and form community groups to keep these things at bay. Yeah. Now, Joanne had said uh, when we're talking about stuff that's being uh, that's being altered or whatever, and she says they are trying to burn Humpty Dumpty uh, and Wizard of Oz because of witchery. I that mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with that to be honest, uh, because that's. Uh, but I mean, you know. But I mean, at the same time, I mean, I, I maybe I'm a maybe I'm an optimist here. I, I think regardless of 
if people are against some of this stuff, I don't think you're going to get rid of it, quite frankly. No, I think are, it's a minority. No, and it's not even about, uh, I think it's not even about the, uh, the uh, yeah, the, there are things like, yeah, the Wizard of Oz has been, Wizard of Oz books, Baum's books have been in trouble ever since they were first released way back in the early 20th century. There have been people that opposed to them. And anytime you write anything, it says this, this person wrote, yeah, there's going to be somebody somewhere. But a lot of it, I think, is that the human human culture, human people have a need to face the shadows. This is something that's very important. And this is why we are interested in these things. And it has nothing to do with the, their imagined versions of Satanism or devil worship or anything else. We, we, we all have a shadow side to ourselves that we need to face up to. And this is something that I think a lot of people who are uncomfortable with that try to repress and push away. And I think a lot of these book burnings and bannings and things are people that can't confront these things. So they, they externalize it and put it on a demon out there rather than looking at the darknesses within themselves. And these, these monsters, I think, represent something about, they tell us about ourselves and about the things that we expect of ourselves and when we fail and what we're afraid that we're capable of. Like, well, if, if, if I can imagine a story about this evil monster slitting open children's bellies, does that mean I'm capable of doing that myself? Or is that just in my imagination? These, these yeah. kind of morality and ethics questions plague us. And so being able to face our own demons, our own inner demons and shadows, these kinds of stories, I think, can help with that, can help us do that. I think that's very true. Uh, and and you know, just thinking about just the universe of Oz, as it were, and, yeah. uh, you know, kind of what we talked about with what, uh, especially folks in the U.S. who don't know, like, all of these type of folklore that that's prevalent from this yeah. time period. The same with uh, the that universe of Oz where, you know, before that film came out in, in uh, the late 30s, how Pretty much of... Yeah. How much, how much, how small part of the, of what Bomb created in Oz that, that film generally represented, you know, out of his, his wealth of, his breadth of work. Yeah, it's just one story, and it's not even the complete story. There's like a whole extra ending, I believe, in the book, isn't there? Yeah, it's not there in is. The film. And yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I have I have very low opinion of book banners, as you might imagine, and, and I imagine. think ultimately they will fail because they don't uh, they don't have anything. There's no there's no reason. They're afraid of themselves. Is what they're afraid of. They're not, you know, they're not. They're, they've externalized something, but what they're really saying is that they're afraid of something inside them. And, and let alone the fact, too, for those who are interested, and I, I think it might still be available in certain Blu-ray sets of Wizard of Oz. I, I've always been fascinated by, by Oz. Um, all of the films that have been made prior to the 1930, uh, what is it, 39? 37, I think. 37? 37, 39. 39, maybe 39. Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever year uh, Gone with the Wind came out. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that is 39. Uh, it's 39. But, yeah. but the the amount of of, of Films that were made, silent films that were made prior to that, uh, just really is is incredible of of what what people had forgotten. We don't, you know, so many people don't even know what they've forgotten. You know, they never had a chance to see it. So exactly, yes, indeed. So the book, yeah. once again, Wait, I just, no, please go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. What was that, Tim? Oh, please go ahead. No, no, that's fine. Uh, the the book is called Scary Book of Christmas Lore: Fifty Terrifying Yuletide Tales from Around the World. With uh, we have uh, Tim Rayborn on. And Tim, was did you have uh, any stories that because you kept it to fifty that you had to throw out or made honorable mentions, or were you pretty set on your fifty that you? I was I think I was pretty sad. I tried to branch out a little bit from the mainstream of Central Europe and look at a couple. And, I'll, and maybe in the third section, I'll read a couple of those. There's a really great story from Iceland and a really great story from Japan that would be worth sharing because there's lots of interesting, uh, lots of interesting things in other parts of the world as well. And Iceland has some very, very strange uh, Yuletide uh, terror terror tales. So yeah, I, these were the ones that I kind of picked. Uh, some of the uh, some of them, 
you start seeing the same, you might see a different monster, but they have basically the same function. So it seemed rather redundant to include three examples of the exact same creature, just that had different names again. And maybe in Austria, it was named different than in Switzerland, but essentially they function as the same characters. There's a lot of overlap. So, and is that, is that overlap mainly because of the proximity of the area? I think so. I think they're very old. It's an, these are very old tales that kind of disseminated into these areas that were a little more isolated. So yeah, you'll have different different places might might have the same creature, but might have a, a different name or a slightly different role. But the story is essentially the same. Wow. Yeah. No. I mean, that's cool. And I'm I am actually very excited to hear uh, the the one from Japan because it's I, the, really the, interesting. Yeah, I could only imagine it being uh, uh, pretty pretty remarkable and pretty. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I just I just think that you know I think one of the, one of the things that I never think about, to be very honest, sometimes, and I'm just going to be very uh, honest about it. You know, it's I sometimes forget to think about outside of uh, the Western world. You know, um, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, not not on any purpose or anything, but you know, you get so yeah. drawn up that it's it's nice to to be able to kind of hear uh what what is going on other places as well that's i mean it sounds yeah. silly to say but yeah yeah no it's easy to get i mean we we are products of our culture so we will look to our culture first for stories and such but it is uh it is interesting to see how things like this can be reflected in in other cultures and and such as well so in japan actually nowadays has a very strong christmas tradition they've gone full on and in, in on it with the tree and santa and all of that but there's some weird things attached to that as well so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, so well of course, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, why don't we go ahead and do this? Why don't we go ahead, take our next break so that we can uh, get to uh, more reading of, of the book. Uh, once again, the book is called The Scary Book of Christmas Lore, 50 Terrifying Yuletide Tales from Around the World. Uh, we are talking with Tim Rayborn. You're listening to Ghost Box Radio on AM950. Join us tomorrow on Ghost Box Radio with Greg Bach, and we're going to have on guest author Anthony F. Sanchez. He's going to talk about his book, UFO Nexus, A Journey into Alien Realms and Cosmic Secrets. Uh, I've been reading this book. It is, uh, it is something else. I think it's going to be a great conversation tomorrow, and I am very much looking forward to it. We have on with us uh, Tim Rayburn. He's the author of The Scary Book of Christmas Lore, 50 Terrifying Yuletide Tales from Around the World. Uh, that is, uh, well, you can order through Amazon. And uh, once again, this is also part of uh, the uh, the associates uh, system we have over at Amazon on my website, uh, ghostboxradio.com. Go to Ghostbox Book Club. Uh, we have this book listed there. If you buy it through Amazon through us, we get a little kickback, if you wouldn't mind. Otherwise, uh, can go ahead and do that just on Amazon anyway. But, Tim, it doesn't matter because the book is so popular that no one could get a copy. <laughs> I think there are select bookstores that still have it, but it's a little bit on back order right now. So hopefully it should be available soon. So. Not, a, not a bad place to be, is it? No, I did sold better than I think they thought it would. So <laughs> congratulations on that. That is great news. Now, uh, this is 50, 50 stories. Is there ever, yeah. uh, ever, ever thought of a follow up book in the same vein? We're talking about it. I can't say anything else about it, but yeah, there might be, there might be more. Yeah. We're, we're talking about a series of things that might look at other holidays actually. So That's we'll see. Uh, there's, there's no shortage of folklore around most of the major holidays <laughs> that could, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure you could do a, a, a scary book of mother's day lore, but there's probably, <laughs> you know, what? I'm sure the Hallmark, maybe mother-in-law mother lore, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm sure the Hallmark monster could be prevalent in the book. Um, so, 
that's terrifying. Hallmark movies are are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, and and unfortunately, I can't think of the name of that woman that's in every Hallmark movie that she nice. was on Days of Our Lives, but. Um, uh, there's only one, there's only one plot. There's like 600 movies, and it's the same plot basically. <laughs> uh, uh, no, em- Emily, Emily would like to know: uh, Are you you're, if you're based on the Twin Cities? I know the answer to this, but uh, you're not. Oh no, I'm actually. You said it at the beginning. You had a little section that's from my older biography. I'm yep. actually in Washington State now. I live in oh. uh, out in the Pacific Northwest at, at this point. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so uh, it's. Uh, how long have you been out of uh, California then? Uh, almost uh, coming up on two years now. So yeah, no, just a decade. That's all. Well, tell <laughs> tell Amazon to update your bio. That's all I'm going to yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> so you you got some yeah. more uh, reading for us, right? Yeah, I wanted to do a couple more. We've talked about sort of Germany and Austria and, yeah. and Switzerland and such, but these these tales extend quite a bit farther out. There's a huge collection of Scandinavian things from Norway and Denmark, and Iceland has its own really unique. Uh, things, Iceland itself, and we'll, we'll do Iceland and then a little bit about Japan. Iceland was largely uninhabited until the late 19th, until the late 9th century when it was colonized by people who left Norway uh, to escape kind of what they saw was increasing oppression from the the monarchs there that were trying to consolidate power. And they moved to this, this sort of barren, but it wasn't completely barren. It actually had forests and, and grassland in the ninth century. And they took with them their animals, their livestock, and they started a new community that was almost somewhat dem- democratic. There were no um, there were no kings, there were no earls, there were none of those sorts of things. And for several centuries, they were very proud of the fact that it was much more of a community farm, uh, farm-based farm uh, society. But they also have some really weird legends that grew up over time. They were still pagan. They worshipped the Norse gods. Those uh, Iceland didn't officially become Christian until the year 1000, but pagan belief persisted for several centuries after that, as we can find in the Poetic and Prose Edda, which are the Norse myths that were written down in the 13th century. But one of my favorite uh, stories from Iceland, and there's a whole bunch, there's stories of trolls and giants, but one of my favorite is called the Jolakaturin, which is the Yule Cat. And they, they still celebrate this. There are statues, lit up statues in Reykjavik that are even up right now, you can actually see. Oh, cool. The idea of a Yule cat might seem appealing at first, a soft, cuddly little feline to warm one on a chilly evening and perhaps curl up in front of a cozy fire, purring and content. Or maybe he brings presents to good children, like so many other fantastical beings. But oh no, definitely not. The Jolakaktoren of Iceland is terrifying, but for what might seem really mundane reasons. First of all, this is no mere house cat. The Yule cat is enormous in size and lies in wait in the dark to exact revenge on hapless children. What is their crime? their clothing. Yes, you see, an old folk custom in Iceland was that children who did not do all of their chores, who did, excuse me, who did do all of their chores would receive new clothes for Christmas. Now, most children these days cringe at the thought of Christmas clothing. They dread receiving either socks and underwear or some horrible holiday sweater that they will be forced to wear at the next family gathering while shriveling up in embarrassment. But for children living in the harsh and cold climate of Iceland, new winter clothing would have been most welcome, and they were expected to wear the new clothing on Christmas night. Why? Because the Yule Cat would come and check up on them. Yes, this gigantic feline would creep into every farm and village on Christmas night and peer into each window to see what the children were wearing. If they'd been good, they would be adorned in their fabulous new Christmas clothes or have them at at hand, at least, to show off. But if the children had been bad, i.e. they hadn't done all of their chores and didn't have at least one new item of clothing, the cat would do two things. First, it would eat whatever dinner was made for them. But going hungry was the least of their worries, for next he would drag the naughty children out of their homes and eat them as the main course. (laughs) Written legends of the Yule Cat only date back to the 19th century, but the tradition is probably much older than that. 
The Norse goddess Freya was said to ride in a chariot drawn by two cats, and a number of other beings could shapeshift at will. So it's possible that belief in a monstrous cat originated in pagan times. But it might just as easily have been an invention of worn-out parents who needed the children to pull their own weight around the house. In addition, it seems to have become a tradition so that those who were better off would be mindful of those who were not. The poor might need the charity of some new, or at least new to them, clothing to stave off the dreadful fate of being snapped up by the ravenous monster cat lurking in the snowy wilds outside of their dwellings. If you could avoid getting eaten, you were probably going to have a good year. <laughs> and and what was not included in that story is that uh, the monster cat eventually retired to the city of St. Michael, where it uh, tries to trip its owner down the stairs every morning. His name is Linus. Uh, that's my cat. It's happened to me, too. I've fallen down stairs <laughs> thanks to a cat trip, yes. <laughs> how, yeah. how interesting is that, uh, the yeah. idea of, of this cat that's looking in uh, children's windows to see what yes. they're wearing? What they're wearing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that notion of pulling your weight. You know, if the farm, if everything wasn't done to winterize the farm, you could be in trouble. So it was, there was, it was more than just don't be bad. So, yeah. It's, it's yeah it's a very it's a very serious motivation isn't it of yeah. of because mm-hmm. because as as kids you know and we were all kids that uh, you know I wasn't, but okay well <laughs> I mean some were just dropped on the on the planet Earth I understand that right. uh, but right. uh, <laughs> but uh, you know the the idea of like no matter how serious the situation is as kids we're just like whatever you know yeah. so yeah you need motivation. Um, now, Emily also had wondered, because uh, uh, she was wondering about where if you were in the Twin Cities or not, was because uh, she was just curious if it might be in local bookstores it, here. It might, yeah. Uh, you could check Independence or Barnes & Noble. They might have it. Yeah, it has, some people have seen it in various places. I've heard that even some airport bookshops have it, so <laughs> you can oh, try that's that. cool. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, God, those are, those are really interesting. Now, I, I really would like to hear... The Japanese yes. one, if I may, please. We'll do one last one. This is the story of Yuki Onna from Japan. And of course, as you know, Japanese have a particularly horrific spin on ghost stories. If you've ever seen The Grudge and The Ring and those sorts of things. Or so, any yeah. anime, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, they, that's a very long tradition. So I'll read you this. This is a story from Japan. Yuki Onna, or the Snow Woman, isn't specifically Christmas related, but she is a type of winter spirit that is sorrowful and frequently terrifying and might well be glimpsed at this time of year. While the Japanese love Christmas celebrations, they are also mindful of their own rich and often frightening folklore. She often appears in the second half of January, so a little later on, a time when traditionally there were New Year celebrations. As with European legends, we see a connection between a time of revelry and a sometimes horrid ghoul that would arrive to spoil the fun. She usually appears as a beautiful young woman with long black hair dressed all in white, seemingly one with the snow itself. There are many legends about her, and these can range from sweet to sorrowful to horrifying, depending on the regions where she pops up. It's not quite clear what Yuki Ona is. Some tales say that she was a young woman who perished in a snowstorm, or was led into a forest in winter and murdered, while others say that she originally dwelled among the gods or on the moon. She came down to Earth to experience this world, but was trapped here and now cannot leave. Any of these reasons could be enough to make her a spirit of murderous vengeance. Legends about Yuki Onna date back to at least the 15th century when the acclaimed poet Sogi claimed to have seen her. He said that she was at least 10 feet tall, with completely white skin, but when he tried to speak with her, she vanished. Her stories are both sad and sometimes violent, a warning to all who venture out into the cold nights of a Japanese winter. And yet some of her appearances are fairly benign. She might be seen asking for water. If given cold water, she grows in size, but if given hot water, she evaporates. Other tales tell of how she knocked at the door of an older man's home asking to be let in to warm up. 
The home's owner did this, and she stayed for a time and then went to leave. When he tried to stop her and took hold of her hand, it was cold as ice. She then transformed into a burst of snow and drifted up the chimney. But other stories are less wistful. Sometimes she appears to travelers with a child, asking them to hug it. If they do, the child and the hugger will become covered in ice and snow, and an unfortunate mortal will freeze to death. If the person refuses to hug the child, Yuki Ona will shove them over the edge of the nearest hill to plunge to their deaths. <laughs> Sometimes Yuki Ona haunts forests, actively seeking out victims. When someone comes by, she will attack and freeze them and then suck the seiki, or essence, out of their mouths, leaving them a frozen husk. Children have especially, especially desirable seiki, apparently. Some legends of the malicious Yuki Ona say that she enjoys ripping the livers out of the victims. Almost all of them include her freezing her captives to death in one way or another. Other tales of Yuki Ona say that she will call out to a traveler, and if that person answers, she will attack. On the other hand, different legends warn that she will call out to a traveler, and if that person ignores her, she will attack. So, basically, you cannot win, and the real lesson here is to stay home when it's snowing at night. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm kind of, because, okay, so, yeah, you're right. Uh, we don't want to meet her ever. No, uh, basically. <laughs> basic, the basic line there. But also, you know, so so much of what you, you've been talking about so far, like like the last one, there is, there is a reason for it. There's a, not necessarily a moral to it, but a, a, a reason for why kids should be helping against Monster Cat. <clears throat> what's, what's the... There, there isn't one here, though, is there? No, I think, and I think that's pretty typical of a number of Japanese stories. The ghost, the vengeful ghost, is very popular in Japanese uh, ghost lore, and many people have claimed to have encountered these. And there's, there's all sorts of urban legends about. They're often young women. They're often were horribly murdered, or perhaps violated and murdered in some way, and so they, they then come back to exact revenge on at the spot or near where they actually died. This is actually a very common, a common, we go back again to The Ring and, and The Grudge and those sorts of films. We see that the idea of the, the vengeful young woman Japanese ghost is, is, is a long tradition in Japanese folklore. Do you think that has to do with trying to leave, like telling telling people leave leave young Japanese women alone? Like telling- I wonder if it also made something to do with very stratified patriarchal systems and such, and, sure. and how young women in particular in historical times would have struggled to break free of those. There might be might be something to do with that. You know, it's there's there's it's possible. I'm not an expert on Japanese folklore, but it seems to me there there could be a connection there. Well, but it doesn't mean that she's a winter spirit. This one in particular is sure. only met in January in the snow. You wouldn't see her in June. So. Well, and and that's that's the uh, that's your next assignment is writing the seventy five book series on <laughs> Japanese lore because yes, seriously, <laughs> be a lot of it. But yes, you know there there is something there's something, and I guess that's the word I was I was kind of hesitant to say when we in the last segment when we're talking about you know some of the Japanese lore because there there is something beautiful about it. And I think that the idea of the of of the of the of the lady is is beautiful and can I think many could picture what she could possibly look like uh but there is that that realistic that real bit of uh attack i guess mm -hmm. i mean it's incredible yeah 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 it's different it's a different flavor to the monsters of european folklore definitely well but sometimes they also appear beautiful but then they reveal themselves and they have gigantic jaws or a large gash in their throat they're like the beauty hides something terrible underneath that's also typical of many japanese ghost stories well so. and that's not surprising and, and there is something always a bit about as a balance and a beauty to as far as anything i see uh japanese uh that it just really uh it, it's 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 really cool i thank you very much for uh sharing all that with us i just absolutely once again, uh, we'll be wrapping up in a couple minutes here, but the book is called The Scary Book of Christmas Lore, 50 Terrifying Yuletide Tales from Around the World. 
uh, written by Tim Rayburn and uh, uh, possibly available somewhere. <laughs> go out and look. It'll be your <laughs> go, assignment. Go look. It's, <laughs> if you it's, don't find it, Krampus will come. So. <laughs> <laughs> the first the first hide-and-seek book uh, that ever, you know, if you find it, good luck. Uh, but uh, there, there's something I, I – there's there's part of your uh, your inaccurate uh, – uh, bio that I, 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 once again, I have to be totally in agreement with. And I had, I had to bring up, which was, uh, you, that apparently, you know, you like, you like great wines, which who doesn't and cooking excellent food. I'm, I love to cook. What, what's excellent food for you? Um, I love all sorts of different cuisines. I'm actually vegan. So I actually do mostly plant-based, uh, cooking yeah. and I love everything from like Italian and Middle Eastern to, uh, you know, uh, there's actually there's some very fine northern European foods that can be made uh, can be made under those sorts of things. But I'm a big fan of Mediterranean foods. Mm. Well, you've been yeah. you traveled all around. I mean, you've been to gymnasiums. So I mean, it's uh... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exotic and beautiful places. So yes. <laughs> and and uh, as as we're wrapping up here, you play a lot of instruments. You said some that we can't even like <laughs> we couldn't even uh, be able to say. What what is one of them? I mean, I, 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 this is more of a joke than anything. I, I've, uh, my main focus is on medieval and early folk music and such of the Europe, uh, Europeans. But I, I've also, I was for a long time very uh, involved in doing Middle Eastern uh, folk music and Central Asian folk music as well and, and some other things. So, yeah, I wanted to play a lot of instruments from those cultures, which is basically it's just there, there's only a small number of instrument families. So once you learn one, it's, it's, it's not that difficult to pick up another one. Was that your yeah, guitar like instruments and drum like instruments and those sorts of things. So, yeah. Was, was that your draw to the UK? Um, no, actually, well, I, I went to do a PhD in history. I did my PhD in medieval studies and, and medieval history. And uh, I also worked as a musician was there and did some of my first writing, uh, professional writing while I was there as well. So, yeah, I think it's funny. Um, as someone who's lived in the UK for years, as you have, uh, I, 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 a number of years ago, I, I took a trip to the UK uh, around this time of year, actually, and all my coworkers were like, "Oh my gosh, that's, that's so amazing!" I mean, it's, they, they, they imagine all of UK, all of the United Kingdom, all of Britain, looking like a Charles Dickens Christmas. And I told them, "I'm going to Birmingham," and, <laughs> and you know exactly where I'm going with that. It, Birmingham is, is, it's fine. It's a working. It's a working class. It's not pretty. <laughs> there's nothing pretty about it. Nothing at all. And uh, you know, they're all expecting you know me to have a stove, you know, top hat, and you know, a big scarf around my my uh, my neck. And it's like, no, uh, no, mm -hmm. this is this is Birmingham. Uh, you have to go out into the small towns for that. Yeah, so, <laughs> not yeah. at all. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Let's let's have you on at the beginning of the year. Let's talk about some yeah. of your other books. I would be delighted to do that. It would be great fun. Us, absolutely. We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to be talking UFOs. Thank you for joining us tonight.